Welcome to Finding the Keys, Conversations on Self-Care for Parents. I'm your host, therapist and coach, Dr. Christine Forte-Klotz. Finding the Keys is not your typical parenting podcast. You won't find instructions or advice here on how to raise your kids. Instead, this podcast is about you as a parent, as a person. We cover real life practices for managing overwhelm, taking care of our health in mind, body, spirit, and embracing the chaos along with the joy parenting brings. Through the interviews and insights shared, we navigate finding the keys to balance in life, work, and beyond. So join me. Let's get started. So today we're joined by Julie Phillips, author of The Baby on the Fire Escape, Creativity, Motherhood, and the Mind-Baby Problem. I discovered this book when my younger child was about a year old, and I found it so insightful for examining all of the dynamics around balancing the energy of parenthood with the energy of creative work, the conflict between these energies, and also the way that they feed each other is a topic that I find fundamental to questions around self-care because they link so closely to self-expression and to our identities, both psychologically, spiritually. In the previous episode of this podcast, we were exploring some personal experiences around this with the artist Alexa Saxon Thomas, who so generously and openly shared about her life and striking these balances And now today we're going in for a broader exploration of the topic with Julie Phillips as she shares with us not only some of her experiences, but also those of many of the artists and writers she has written about. So welcome, Julie, and thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. To start off with, for readers that aren't familiar with it, could you tell us a bit more about your book? The Baby on the Fire Escape, Creativity, Motherhood, and the Mind-Baby Problem. It's a biographical look at um, writers and artists who were also mothers. I started out writing it with the idea, I'm just going to write about some women that I'm interested in, and this is what they have. And and also in the back Mm -hmm. of my mind was, um, I was interested in women who had left their children in order to write or make art, the ones who had made the most dramatic choices. And as I was writing, I realized that as fascinating as that subject is, you know, the real question is, how do you make that choice every day in your own life to take that small step away from motherhood in order to get your work done? And so I just, I looked at, I ended up looking at how that played out in the lives of a lot of different women in the 20th century, in um, mostly in the UK and the US, and how the different ways that they coped from, you know, leaving their kids entirely, like Doris, although unwillingly, like Doris Lessing, or having a partner who shared in the child care like Ursula Le Guin or having a partner who did most of the child care like uh, Angela Carter and all the strategies that they had around how can I afford this where am I going to get the support that I need what kinds of support do I need um 
what strategies can I use to focus my mind on writing and to go back to the maternal part of my life? Wow. So it it sounds like really looking at the challenges that they were facing and some of the questions around, as you said, I guess, whether they could stay with their children or in some cases, if if they had to leave, maybe not by choice. Mm -hmm. Um, Or even that, you know, kind of, I think it's interesting what you alluded to there with like the, the daily sort of micro leaving of, mm-hmm. you know, maybe intellectually or emotionally having to leave for a little bit. Um, and because I find that probably for most of us, we have this very strong, even maybe visceral reaction to the idea of the ones that left permanently, mm-hmm. uh, which I think can be an interesting thing for us to explore in and of ourselves of like what's what's coming up there when we have that reaction to someone else's life. Um, but even the micro leaving is is kind of interesting to contemplate of how do we make those compartmentalizations or those switches between the being there and then the mentally being somewhere else. What did you observe about that in the commonalities between these women? I mean, in some ways, when you look at the women who left and you think, God, I could never do that. You know, it's all—it's a kind of a reassurance to say, well, at least I'm not a bad as bad a mother <laughs> as those other mothers. And I think, you know, to some extent, we seek out the extremes in order to affirm that, you know, we are working towards a balance. You know, to find out how far I myself would be willing to go, or that you would be willing to go in that mm-hmm. separation. And different women, I think, approached it really differently. The challenging thing in writing the book for me was realizing that I didn't have a narrative of motherhood that would make sense that, you know, that wasn't just a pile of sort of anecdotes and one thing after another and sometimes terrible things and sometimes good things, but not, um, I couldn't find a psychological guide to mother's psychological development, to mother's development as mothers, which is really strange if you think about it. I kept thinking, I must be missing it. I must be not just not looking in the right places. And then I would go read another book or another 10 books and still not find anything in developmental psychology that was about the mother's development and not the child's or maybe the mother's development as it affected the child but to try to turn the Oedipal triangle so that you are seeing from the mother's point of view seems to be a really difficult challenge for psychology and I ended up going back to the really old-fashioned notion of the, and, you know, in some ways, limited notion of the hero's journey, not in the sense of the hero who slays the monster or the self-sacrificing hero, but the hero who, you know, goes through a dark night of the soul and finds out something about herself. The hero who is immersed into you know, one of the most intense experiences of her life, caring for a small child. 
and learns, you know, and, you know, maternal instinct is definitely overrated. And, you know, even if there is maternal instinct, how do you find that in yourself? You have to, you know, you learn what you're capable of. You learn what you're not capable of. You learn where your strengths and weaknesses are. Um, You find out that maybe you find out that you're enjoying yourself much more than you thought you would, which was my experience. Have going in with a kind of negative view of, oh, it's probably going to be really stupid for the first three years and then they'll be able to talk to me and I'll be fine. Not expecting to really enjoy a baby as much as yeah. <laughs> And it's so interesting what you mentioned about the difficulty in finding a psychological model for this development mm-hmm. of, you know, going from mother to or going from woman sorry to mother and well I guess that's not even right is it going from individual person without children uh to mother and uh that there doesn't really seem to be one because I also examined this I might have mentioned when we spoke previously for research that I did uh, and the closest thing we could kind of find was research around the development of maternal efficacy, you know, kind of the development of like the confidence and belief that I can do this, I can manage with my child. But that doesn't even encompass it entirely. You know, that's just one piece is the maternal efficacy. But we ended up kind of focusing on social learning and those aspects because that was just what we could find. Uh, but you're right that the the whole element of it, that there, there are a lot of pieces like the hero's journey of going through a tremendous challenge and something that in many ways is a physical trauma um, and an, often an emotional trauma as well, you know, of the, the birth itself. And then mm-hmm. kind of this development of your identity after that um, with also, you know, a lot of pieces of, of joy and connection to this mm. new little person, hopefully if all and is physical going well. pleasure, I think too, yeah. there's a lot of kind of intimacy with your child and that you don't have with anybody else. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And there are probably, there just isn't really a, a great model that I guess describes all of that. I don't know, maybe it's too big or maybe there just hasn't been enough examination of it but I do like this idea of the hero's journey and that's something that when I'm doing some coaching with organizations on you know if if they have like say for a manager that has someone returning from Mm -hmm. their parental leave and how to work with that person I often kind of encourage it that way of like let's celebrate this person who's returning and Mm -hmm. make sure we kind of fully pull them back into our circle and knowing that there might be some things that they've, you know, felt a bit outside of, or instead of seeing it as like, oh, now they're the weak link. Um, But actually, no, it's, it's the opposite. Mm -hmm. They're the returning hero. But I think all too often our, our society doesn't see it that way that, you know, new parents are maybe seen as the weak link. um, Unfortunately. I mean, they are, I mean, you are returning with a burden of responsibility that you mm. didn't have before. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, is that, you know, what if that's not a bad thing? What if that is a way of incorporating work into a healthy society as well as the other way around? 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and, and something that I was talking about with Alexa on the last episode was how like for many people procrastination becomes kind of impossible. <laughs> like you just mm-hmm. know that you have these chunks of the day to get things done. And in a way, if you know, all right, I have these two hours to do whatever mm-hmm. it is. And if I don't do it in those two hours, it's not going to happen. You know, in a way you can actually become more focused than if mm-hmm. you know, you just have the whole day to do something. That was definitely true for me, but you know, I also had, you know, I had a responsible way to procrastinate. I mean, if it was a beautiful day, I could take the kids to the park and enjoy myself. I was off the hook in that way. So it was a nice, um, it was, for me, it was a really, it gave a really nice uh, work-life balance where I was working intensely when I was working and mostly not feeling bad about it. Yeah. I should say that one, no, I was going to say that one, a uh, piece of uh, psychological research that was really useful to me was um, Andrew Solomon, the writer you know, of uh, Far From the Tree. Uh, he had a PhD thesis. And he got his PhD in psychology with a thesis about um, early motherhood, where he said that women have to develop two relationships. One is to their baby, and the other one is to themselves as a mother, to the person that they want to be as a mother, the person they thought they were going to be as a mother, the person that they have actually become as a mother. And that's one way of redirecting attention to what's happening to the mother, what's happening to the mother in relationship to what's expected of her socially, what she wanted out of motherhood, all that, you know, kind of reality check of, okay, are you, is this what you expected? If not, what now? Yeah, and exactly. That No, that's so beautiful. The two, development of two relationships with the baby mm-hmm. and also a new relationship with yourself. And, and definitely that piece with the self is all too often. Which is a huge kind of an inner landslide, I think. <laughs> and women are just supposed to you know, parents, I think, are just supposed to assume those roles automatically, step into them, and perform them as social roles and not as personal situations. So when you speak about in in the title of your book, The Mind Baby Problem, is that kind of what you're referring to? Is that balance of the the two parts or what what was your thought there? Well, um, I was thinking of you know, intellectual labor and creative labor versus um, maternal labor and, you know, which doesn't have to be a versus, but in theory, but in practice is often a question of, okay, where am I going to allocate my time? Where am I going to put my energy? Why is it that um, these two kinds of labor appear to cancel each other out rather than um, reinforcing each other. And why is it that the society, you know, the society regards them as canceling each other out? That why is it so difficult to talk about or think about this intersection? It's great that so many artists and writers now are talking about and thinking about it. Just in the year since my book has come out, there's been there have been so many really great other books that I wish that I'd had when I was working on this one. 
thinking about this very question of what is there, what is in this unmapped space where motherhood and creativity converge. Oh, but it's it's true that I, I think it is, luckily, and it, that it's a good thing becoming more and more, you know, maybe sort of part of the zeitgeist right now. Of Very much. How do we address these two challenges um, of the, the sort of competing energies there? But also, you know, something that, that did come through as a theme in your work is is that there certainly are artists and writers and, you know, of course, people in society where the energy of the mothering, there are ways that it feeds the energy of the creative work. Were there any particular examples of that that kind of, you know, stick in your mind now as we're talking about it, of perhaps someone whose writing or art might not have been what it came to be uh, without the, the mothering energy that, informed it or fed it yeah definitely uh alice neal's uh work uh painting um pregnant women and women and, and you know sometimes fathers and children and families is deeply deeply informed by her own experience and her own attention to not only the physicality of pregnancy and the physicality of early parenthood but the um the psychological dynamics of families and a lot of that only comes out after her kids are older and sometimes it's in pictures of her her um daughter-in-law and her grandchild for instance that you see it the most strongly so she's looking at other people but you can see it yeah, you referred quite a yeah. lot to her uh, daughter-in-law uh, in, in your book, and it mm -hmm. seems that they had a very close relationship. Yeah, to both her daughters-in-law, they really. Yeah. She um, had um, not. She did not have a good relationship with her daughter. She had, you know, kind of a rocky early childhood with her sons, and some people just, I think, have a talent for mother being a mother at different ages of their children and um she was a really i think it, it seems really lovable mother when her sons were older sure. and, uh, and and for her daughters-in-law as well yeah it almost i almost got the feeling that maybe she was like trying somehow to i don't know to like get it right now if you will like with the daughters-in-law uh, maybe that wasn't it. Maybe somehow no, I it was think, just a I different time in her right. life. But she wanted, um, you know, she needed kids who could live with her art, and that's, you know, there's no guarantee that you're going, you know, what kind of relationship your kids are going to have with their vocation, particularly if the culture is telling them all over the place that, you know, why aren't you. The, you know, why don't you have a stay-at-home mom who makes your, your sandwiches in the morning? And um, Audrey Lord's daughter talks about that, that her um, they had to do a lot more chores than the other kids who were their friends. They lived, they were living on Staten Island when she was a teenager and in a more suburban culture than um, some of the urban kids getting this um, mom service. And it wasn't until she read her mother's poetry collections when she was a teenager 
that she, um, the light went on and she said, oh, this is why this is more important than that, you know, and recognized her mother as an artist. Yeah, and I just get chills to think about To meet that, your mother about, in a new way. Yeah, about the daughter reading that work and and feeling, oh, this is what my mother has created in the world, you know, in addition to us, the children, of course. But mm -hmm. even though that, some, you know, she used to go to her readings when she was little and she would, some of that she found scary because some of uh, Audre Lorde's poems were really um, confrontational became easier for her to understand. She described Audre Lorde as a, a, a psychologically generous mother who you know, wanted them to be their own people, which is a really nice thing for any mother to want, I think. And, and they were also material for Audre, who wrote you know, great poems about giving birth and about having children. And one of my favorite things about her as a mother is that she um, created a community around her of um, either friends who were supportive of her parenthood or other parents who were supportive of her parenthood and her writing. Particularly, um, I like her friendship with uh, Diane de Prima, the beat poet. They were they went to high school together, and they. Um, both, uh, they looked after each other's kids. They um, sent each other hand-me-downs. Um, Diana Prima gave Audrey a desk when she wanted to start writing again when her kids were little. Um, she published her first book of poems. <laughs> um, wow. So a lot she, of support there from a good friend. And they it, were reading each other's work and, you know, corresponding. And, uh, yeah, there, so there was a lot of support in which the maternal and the creative was merged. It seems that that was true, perhaps for a lot of the writers and artists in that you wrote about, that, that there was some sort of social support, even if it wasn't directly from family, but and even if it wasn't entirely consistent over their lives, but that there were periods at least of sort of friends that they would get help from, um, or other artists or writers that supported them, that having mm -hmm. that social support, I guess, was an important piece of, of being able to persist in the work, maybe? Or what What do you notice about Yeah, very it? much so. Um, I mean, supportive partner, but so were supportive parents. And, and supportive can mean various things. Uh, Ursula Gwynn, um, Gwen's parents uh, helped her to have an abortion when she had, was pregnant in uh, college and her boyfriend dumped her. And um, she of the baby then, and so they helped her to find somebody who would. And, um, you know, the same happened with Alice Walker with her community. Right. Yeah, that it was like a group that helped her to, yeah. to access that option, wasn't it? And she struggled, I think, because her mother, uh, Alice Walker, because her mother wasn't able to be supportive in the ways that she needed. Her mother wasn't as understanding of her need to combine a career in motherhood as she well, wanted her to be. It, it seems that for quite a few of the artists and writers, at, at least from what I understood, they're 
uh, experience with their own mothers was often one of uh, a mother who was unavailable or even for some of them abusive. Mm-hmm. Uh, this this also seemed to be a common theme was that there had been a difficult relationship with their own mothers. Awesome, I'm curious yeah. what you observed about that or your thoughts on how maybe that influenced their work or their development as writers and artists. In some ways, I think the most successful women writers and artists of the 1940s and 50s were actually the ones who had terrible relationships with their mothers because you had to break so dramatically from convention in order to in order to go out there and be a writer and speak your own truth in a, at a time when there were very few women doing that. You know, you see with Shirley Jackson, who had such an awful relationship, her mother, that she left to write, but it wasn't really enough. It wasn't, um, you know, I, I think she didn't, you know, I think having her own children was really healing for her and being able to support them in a way that her mother hadn't supported her and having a loving family was important to her. But, you know, she also had an emotionally abusive husband and she, I think if she'd broken even more thoroughly with what her mother thought of her, cared even less what her mother thought that um, she would have um, had an easier time in life. You know, but that has more to do with social convention, the social conventions of the 20th century than... Mm -hmm anything else and for for Audre Lorde too having children was a healing process from having an overstressed mother who wasn't able to be there for her you know and for Alice Walker it wasn't enough it wasn't um it wasn't having a daughter wasn't enough to make up for the lack of mothering that she had experienced and for you know systemic racism that she had been through a yeah. lot of, of trauma. But there were, you know, Ursula, Ursula Gwynn's mother was unusually for a time extremely supportive and was probably the happiest of everybody that I wrote about. Okay. And partly because of that. So that's it's interesting you feel like some of that dynamic of the the breaking with their mothers was part of a just the time periods that they lived in. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like that that would be true now for developing artists and writers? Um, or would it be, I guess, the way many of our cultures are now that it might not be as necessary to have that break in order to push forward? I think mothers are a lot more supportive. Parents in general are a lot more supportive of their daughters' uh, ambitions than they used to be. Which is great, and I, but I don't think that's true for all parents everywhere. It's still for some women probably necessary to make that break, and then it's extra important to make sure that you have a good support network, both practically and emotionally. You know, and not everyone has a mother to support them while they're having right. kids. You mentioned about Ursula Le Guin being probably, I guess, one of the happiest of the mm-hmm. the women that you wrote about. And 
if if I remember correctly, she's also the focus of your next project. She is. I should say that that was one of my measurements for success as a mother in my book because I didn't want to say you know, I didn't want to measure success as a mother by how the kids turned out or to you know open up that as a source of judgment but just to say did it work for them did it give them more than it took away did it um did they have pleasure in their mothering did they feel authentic as mothers and you know successful and enriched by the experience but Le Guin yeah your observation with her is that she did I think so yeah and she although she suffered from the empty nest as they all did now that I'm there myself I I I can understand I you know I find it really validating actually to see that it's not just me that people have trouble with it you do it is a big psychological adjustment to not having that role anymore and having to set out and start over again in the night in your 19 in your 50s sorry <laughs> and um it's also really inspiring to look at the women you know like alice neil like penelope fitzgerald like ursula Gwynne's mother who hit success in their 50s and 60s whose careers uh, took off from there Louise Bourgeois, too, who's such a fantastic artist about motherhood and makes all those, um, you know, menacing-looking spider figures and calls them mama. Yeah, it's it's interesting what you mentioned there about the ones that hit success in their 50s and 60s, uh, because I think from developmental Mm -hmm. models, this is something that in most careers is the case, that, you know, in those periods of life that's where we're really like kind of at the top of mastery of our area Uh, but there's often maybe societally or culturally ideas of somehow the the young genius in their 20s as being the common model Mm -hmm. of success Uh, and I'm curious if if you find that that pressure maybe to to produce something at a particular age uh, was a factor for any of the women that you were writing about or if if that wasn't something you encountered or if you find that that has any influence with the empty nest syndrome that you mentioned? I mean, they all kept working. That Nobody ever really stopped working except maybe um, um, Elizabeth Smart, who wrote by Grand Central Station, I sat down in which I think lost the thread of after that book of what she was saying and I think in some ways she had this huge energy in the 40s and 50s when she was in her 30s and 40s that when she was older and did have more time she could never quite get back but there were different reasons for that too I think she wanted to talk about her motherhood in ways that she wasn't able to she wasn't able to recognize her own experience partly because she hadn't seen it narrated anywhere else partly because she spent too much time listening to men you know it wasn't able to acknowledge her sexual feelings for women wasn't able to acknowledge i think her anger at men had didn't have you know also had a terrible mother and didn't have the courage to break with what her mother's 
vision of healing. So these were kind of all obstacles that she had to sort of work through or get past yeah. know, to reach being able to do the work that she was capable of. Yeah, you know, she found a very attractive but unreliable man and she was using, you know, his, she was hoping for his approval in the same way that she once hoped for her mother's approval. And she never quite got beyond that and beyond him. With the empty nest, you know, and, and actually I want to revise calling it empty nest syndrome because I think it's not a syndrome. I think it's, you know, maybe a developmental stage. So maybe we yeah. say empty nest mm-hmm. stage that it's, yeah. uh, perhaps it's it's something that you work through, but it's not um, an indication of a melody. No. Um, in the sense of what how we might typically define a syndrome and uh if it's okay with you I know you had mentioned previously that that was something a stage that you had to work through when your two children uh were moving out and I'm I'm interested how you feel like that influenced your work as a writer or I mean I think it took my book it made my book take longer in some ways because I got more procrastinate and more um, caught up in the domestic in certain ways Um, and you know dealing with you know the new situation with my partner and how we were going you know us together with the empty nest is its own thing it takes time and energy so but it did make me you know having experienced a lot of the different stages of parenthood, it made me really want to move beyond um, just the first few months or the first year. And there are a lot of great narratives of pregnancy and of the first of motherhood. And I thought, okay, what comes after that? What next? What does it look like over a full life? You know, and experience my relationship with my kids growing and changing, you know, feeling like there are things that I could have done. <laughs> Was I, you know, the best example for them of a cool, calm, and collected, creative person? <laughs> you know, Wait, is that a thing? Uh, a cool, calm, and collected, right, creative yeah, person? Uh, you know, I think they probably have a permanent <laughs> association now of creativity with chaos. <laughs> and uncertainty which yeah I still don't I think one of the things that I wish time would bring me an ability to cope with uncertainty and with not knowing things at the core of creativity in ways that I find a little bit difficult and scary so do you mean uncertainty in terms of how a project will develop or do you mean uncertainty as it relates to children or both no in this case my you know creative uncertainty and and, you know in the case of this book not knowing you know being stuck and not knowing why or what you know what was missing until I realized that you know there needed to be a a narrative of motherhood so sort of you know letting myself get frustrated by that and, and anxious because I needed to find out something that I didn't know and it was taking me a long time and what if you never find out and <laughs> I don't want to be in this place and, and yet it is the most productive place 
So the, the uncertainty is sometimes part of the production. Yeah, and then I think that can be harder to cope with if you're a parent than if you know exactly what you're doing and where you're going at the point when you become a parent. Or if, you know, you hit an uncertain patch in the middle as I did. There's not, you know, it's one thing to make time for, you know, work when you have a clear path ahead and you know I have to do this, 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 and this. And um, then, you know, a, my show can go up or my book can be published. But to, have, to make time for not knowing and for not having a path forward and for seeking and searching is more difficult, you know, both practically and psychologically. Yeah, well, and that's such a good point that sometimes that, I guess, the exploration needed to make time and space for that. There's, for me at least, often sometimes like this question of, will it be worth it? Um, You know, even like Mm -hmm. for me, I I guess a current creative project is this podcast. Uh, And in starting Mm -hmm. it, it means that it's, you know, it, it makes my work day a bit fuller and there's the question that comes up of, you know, is it worth it compared to the time that it might take away from family or children or household? Mm-hmm. And and it's harder to pursue that than when it's clear that, okay, you know, maybe for the, the writer who already has the book contract or for the podcast host that perhaps already is, you know, very mm-hmm. known or has that as a job, um, and is just having to make time for the work that's already defined, but to take mm-hmm. time for the exploration maybe is a bit more challenging, but I find also very important and worth it when we can do it because it's maybe not just at a psychological level, but even at a spiritual level, kind of part of how we develop and awaken to who we fully are, which then is is part of what we bring to our mothering and that without some of those awakenings and self-exploration, you know, maybe we bring a a slightly more closed version of ourselves to the time with our children, which isn't necessarily a benefit to them. Yeah. I hope that's true. I mean, there's always the fear that it's just going to be navel gazing. (laughs) (laughs) I know what you mean. Are you going to, are you going to develop uh spiritually through this or is it a is it an illusion or is it a dead end that you don't know and you can't know you just have to kind of throw yourself into it not knowing or you know commit and in well, that way actually i find i found right um mothering um especially when my kids were smaller really reassuring because there was one part of my life where i was really grounded and i did know that I was doing useful stuff and I did know that I was, you know, my presence was required and my skills were uh, appreciated and needed and were going, you know, I thought were going to good use as opposed to the bits where you just have to take it on faith. And perhaps that's the parts of this that are more broadly applicable to self-care, even, you know, part of my my thought in pursuing this set of episodes around creativity and self-care um, is that that creativity, the self-expression is is such an important piece 
of how we take care of ourselves, how we make sure that we're continuing to develop as people. And I think that that more broadly applies even maybe to people that aren't in the writing or art fields. Are there things that that you noticed in in your work with describing the lives of the these writers and artists that you found might be bro- more broadly applicable outside of the what people would think of as the creative professions, if you will? Yeah, I thought people respond who are psychologists, who are scientists, um, you know, people in all kinds of um work um there you know there are many all in all work i think you have to struggle between um you know just to make time for the t- for mothering and your work both but also there are so many different kinds of creative thought of this you know including in the sciences and to make time for an intellectual devotion of any kind and to make space for that is something that you can see reflected. And I love that phrase, making time for an intellectual devotion. That's beautiful. Yeah, I so admire people in the sciences who are able to combine that too with um and you know with the kind of full emotional relief that you get from the family. It brings us back again to sort of that balance of energies Mm -hmm. and perhaps how they do compete with each other for our attention, but also certainly feed one another. Well, I want to thank you again for, for joining us here today on the show. Your book, The Baby on the Fire Escape, I found it to be just such a pioneering work in terms of how we can learn from the lives of others, the way both the successes and the challenges of these artists and writers is communicated. And and you communicate them so empathetically, respectfully, and truthfully. I I know you had mentioned before that, I don't know, from somewhere, maybe you received some feedback that someone found it judgmental. I I didn't find that at all. I found that there was a lot of of care and respect given to the lives of these women and and their struggles, really. It's not sugar-coated by any means, mm-hmm. you know, you tell that this is what happened, but it is still very compassionate and I just found that really beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, it wasn't something that I felt really polemical about. Sometimes I think I should have written a first-person polemic about, you know, this is what you know, creative women need and it needs mm-hmm. to happen and mm-hmm. um, or creative parents need. And um, I thought, but we need so many things. And maybe it's, it, it can be also slightly different, I guess, for different people, depending on their personalities or their experiences or exactly what needs to unfold within them for their voice to come through. Yeah, so I t- tried to make a, a kind of an open space for needs and desires and getting them met in all kinds of different ways. There's not one way to do it. There's not one way to do it wrong. <laughs> yeah, that it's it's one of those things that's maybe not a question of right or wrong, but of figuring out you know what's what's true or what fits for you. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. wonderful. Well, thank you again so much. 
Thank you all again for joining me here today. I'm so grateful to have each and every one of you along with me on this journey. As always, I welcome your feedback and your questions. Please let me know what you want to hear about. Contact info is in the show notes. And also don't hesitate to share this episode with anyone you think would benefit from it. We'll be back next time with more.